Okay, you know that song we just sang, Living for Jesus, uh, one of my favorites. Song, one of the first songs I ever learned, uh, and long before I knew really what it was about, but the, the words to that song, really, if that's all you knew, has the entire gospel and the plan to get to follow the Lord right in it. So it's, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good song. I know the music style is not, not contemporary, but what are you going to do? We are uh, continuing our series in the Corinthian letters of Paul. He addresses them in the first chapter as holy ones, saints, with all who call upon the name of the Lord. We are called to be a holy community. He then expresses a problem of disunity among them, uh, which is based on their adherence to specific teachers and arguments over who baptized them. Paul explains that the ministers are merely servants uh, of God and that the message of the cross is the significant focus. He says that they're acting like the world and focusing on personalities and style. Uh, the wisdom that, they are, uh, that the apostles, however, are speaking is the wisdom from God and the discernment that comes from the Spirit of God. But the Corinthians, he says, are simply babies and show their immaturity uh, by such actions. The messengers of the gospel are going to be rewarded or they're going to suffer loss based on the judgment of God. And so the leaders should fear and be faithful. And this disruption of unity is a problem and Paul, as a father, is sending Timothy to assist them in these things. Uh, but he is also coming... And they must choose if he will come as a father to discipline them or to gently encourage them. Now that brings us up to, to where we were in the first four chapters. The next three chapters are uh, the same subject, the issue of unity. But Paul's going to address them from a, a different perspective. And this, this first uh, part of this second section is uh, pretty significant. A lot of people quote from a lot of the next three chapters, usually without seeing the unity of those chapters. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to see that. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, It's actually reported that there is fornication or immorality among you. And this fornication is such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone should have his father's wife. A couple of comments. First of all, most Bibles don't use the word fornication there. It's the Greek word pornei. We get our word pornography from that. This is about sexuality. Uh, I believe that it should be translated fornication and people should be taught what it means. But many Bible translators have problems with that. Uh, even in the NASB, we've gone back and forth with me trying to push one direction and getting pushed back from people saying, nobody knows what that means. Uh, that's a problem <laughs> uh, that people don't know what it means. But beyond that, Paul is reporting or saying that there's a report. Paul would not say this if the report wasn't confirmed. Uh, that there is an open fornicator in the re as a regular part of the Corinthian congregation. Now it's a form of sexual sin that Paul says uh, is not even going on among the pagan Gentiles. That's saying something. 
because the city of Corinth is a seaport on both sides. And it is uh, such a place of pagan and sexuality that the, uh, to, the F word for them is to Corinthianize somebody. That, I mean, that's the issue. This is a, they are in a world very similar to ours in that context. And Paul says this isn't even being mentioned among them. A man is openly engaged in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now there are two possibilities here. One possibility uh, in the circumstances of the report is that this man has seduced his father's wife who is not his mother. And uh, in that sense, it's a form of uh, sexual sin in that she's cohabiting, cohabiting with him. The other is the possibility that the man and his father are sharing a younger woman who has become the wife of the, of the father. Uh, in other words, uh, and, and since Paul doesn't address the woman or the father, it's likely that they, that they are just continuing in their paganism and this guy is kind of living in both worlds. Now, I want to talk about this because people always say to me, well, what exactly are the parameters of sexual immorality and, and uh, fornication in this sense? It comes from Leviticus chapter 18. So I'd like you to turn there. Leviticus chapter 18. We're going to look at uh, uh, the very first part of this chapter, one verse in the middle and then the end of the chapter because I don't have time to go through it. Paul says, uh, Paul, Moses says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them, I am the Lord your God. Notice God prefaces this and ends this with, I am the Lord your God. Basically what he's saying is, I, I made you and I redeemed you from Egypt. I am creator and redeemer and therefore you will do what I say. You will not live like the Egyptians. You will not live like the Canaanites. In other words, you will not be conformed to this world but you will be transformed by your mind to live after my commandments. Then he tells what those commandments are. He gives a number of those that are related to sexuality, including bestiality, including incest, including uh, uh, what many interpret as uh, pederasty or child abuse uh, and, and same-sex relationships. Uh, all of these are holiness commandments related to to Israel and the Gentile who, who dwells with Israel. In verse 8 he says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Now, the reason he says that is because the father's wife is echad, one with, the father, with his father. And therefore, to uh, uncover her nakedness is to uncover the father's nakedness. They are one. And so this is a violation of that that union which is to be exclusive. And that's, that's an important issue. So, this is 
surrounded by the text of the Torah that says, you shall be kadosh, for I am kadosh. These are holiness commandments. They are given to the people of God. It is understood that those who don't know God engage in these kinds of activities because they don't have the command of holiness upon their life. In Acts chapter 15, we get this explained in more detail uh, as the disciples are struggling with what to do with the Gentile believers. This began at Galatia. You know the story. Uh, Paul is um, there. There are some people that come down claiming to be from the apostles, though they're not. And they say, you are eating with the Gentiles. <coughs> These Gentiles have to be circumcised and obey all the commandments of the fathers, which means not only the Torah, but the, the traditions in order to be saved. In other words, God only saves Jews. Paul says, no way. Uh, they come and they have a discussion. And in that discussion, they determine that God is in fact calling Gentiles. They know the scriptures. They quote him for that. And they realize that in the book of Leviticus, certain commandments are said to be for the Jew, the native born Jew, and the stranger, that would be a Gentile, who dwells with Israel. And of course, they know that God is calling out this people to dwell with Israel. So those commandments become part of the commandments required. And so in verse 22, they write a letter to the Gentile churches to tell them where they need to start in their Torah observance. Their Torah observance is different than the Jews under covenant, but there is a requirement nonetheless. This is expressed through the Noahic uh, laws in Judaism. But here the apostles give four essentials. It says, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They send people to be witnesses that this is in fact the decision of the council. They sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles' greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no such instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, that's unity, right, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. Seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Essentials are not optional. Okay? That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. All holiness commandments, all related to uh, idolatry, and abuse of sexuality, and foods that are associated with all that pagan uh, religious notion. If you keep yourselves free from these things, you will do well, farewell. 
And so this is the initial foundational letter that they are given. Now, I talked about this. God makes clear statements about this kind of violation. I want you to turn with me real quickly to the book of Amos, chapter 2. I say quickly, it will be difficult for some of you to find it. Uh, It's in the new section of your Bible, (laughs) Uh, right after Hosea. uh, And Amos is right in front of Andy, no, (laughs) Micah. Uh, if if you know where those books are. In Amos chapter 2, God is describing his complaints about the Gentiles and then his complaints uh, about uh, uh, Judah and Israel, or his people. Uh, And he says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. They don't care about the righteous or the poor. They pan after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. They want anything they can get even from the helpless. They're just going to, it's all about them. They will turn aside uh, the way of the humble. These people are arrogant and full of themselves. And a man and his father resort to the same girl. In order to profane my holy name. This is the notion of the violation of what marriage is about. Which is the image of God in our relationships. And so that's why this sexuality thing is such an important issue. So back to 1 Corinthians. I've only gotten through the first verse but I'll go faster now. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul then gives a statement in verse 2. You have become arrogant. See the the connection? You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed should be removed from your midst. Uh, They basically have said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What about grace? It's all about grace. It's all about God loves you and he can't see you suffer. So no matter how bad you are, he's just going to forgive you. Which is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the current evangelical form of it in many churches, but it's not true. The gospel is that there is no sin that can separate you from God if you will turn from it and come to God and walk in his ways. You will not walk in his ways perfectly, but if you walk in the light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's not cleansing us from intentional sin, it's cleansing us from the unintentional sin that so easily besets us. Now having said that, we get a statement from Paul in verses 3 to 5 that indicate his attitude about this situation. Paul says, I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of of the Lord Jesus. Now, some things you need to think about here. First of all, 
Paul is saying that if you are uh, engaged in this, and he's, he's certain that it's happening, he's already made a judgment as an apostle. And he tells them that when they gather together, when they gather together as a community, and they have his letter with them, that they are to formally move this guy out of the congregation. Now, I want you to catch something. He says, I want you to remove him for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. There's a lot there. I can't go into it in a lot of detail. But there are certain sins in the Bible that says, if you do these, you will be cut off from the people. The idea is that this excommunication or this mortal sin removes a person from the community, removes them from the fellowship, it may even bring about death, the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit, the spirit will be saved. Now, there, there will be a resurrected body that will be subject to this temptation. And so the idea is that they're removing him from the realm of the holy community into the world where the God of this world is, where God does the judging. The judging inside is us. The judging outside is God. So he says, I want you to remove this guy. Notice that he's assuming that this person is a believer. And we will see that that's exactly true. In the second letter, he will tell them, now, let this guy back in. Okay, So he's repented. Now, the church is not good at doing this, particularly evangelicals. Uh, and uh, in my own case, uh, the church didn't do it to me. I did it to myself in my own arrogance. I just said, I've had it with you. I'm up to here with God's wonderful people. Out I go, right? Some people self-excommunicate. Same issue happens. Once you're out there, then God's got a clear shot. And in my case, and in the case of this man... The Lord in His grace and in His mercy, which is beyond comprehension, dealt with me and brought me back into the holy community. If we aren't believers, He will not punish in this life. He will punish in the next. So the purpose of the excommunication is not to say, be damned, but hopefully you won't be damned. God will bring you back. That's an important part of this notion. Now, in this context, uh, Paul goes on. And now he talks about the congregation. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us uh, celebrate the feast. He's talking about the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Paul's saying holiness, humility, and unity are being destroyed in this congregation. And he uses the Torah 
and the holy days of Passover and unleavened bread to explain this to them. This is important because they know the Torah. They're reading it regularly. They know these commandments. And they understand it. They're celebrating the shadow in the days of unleavened bread of the substance of what Messiah has done. And they are to understand that they are to remove the leaven, as is done at the beginning of Passover week, and then be unleavened bread. That's the bread of holiness. The bread in the, in the temple was unleavened. That notion is clear to them. And so he says, we're to keep the feast. He's not just talking about the ceremony. He said, don't just eat unleavened bread for seven days. You've got to understand it's about removing it from your life. You're supposed to remove from your life malice, the Greek word is evil, and wickedness, that's iniquity. These are all violations of the commandments. And you are to uh, use the unleavened bread, which is sincerity, purity, there's nothing there but bread, and truth, the word and the ways of God, which are to be established in God's people. When we come to Christ and we come to each other, we become a holy community separate from the world. And if the world stuff is going on among us, then those people, if it's a serious one, have to be put outside. Not to condemn them. It is an act towards redemption. We don't get this. This is the ultimate tough love. Because our tendency is to say, well, if they go out there, they're just going to get worse. No, if they don't go out there, we're going to get worse. At this point, this is the old deal of one bad apple spoils the whole thing. Once that corruption is in the community and the community's gone, it's no big deal. Now the whole community will be corrupted in that sense. So he's going to now give us his teaching. Chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with fornicators. I did not at all mean the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters because then you would have to leave the world. You'd at least have to get out of California. Okay? But actually, what I wrote to you, notice that they already know this. I wrote to you not to associate, to mix, really what the word means, with any so-called brother. Because now we don't know if he's really a brother or not a brother. If he is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with that one. Wow. Wow. So Paul says, here's the principle of my teaching in all the churches. And he reminds them that he wrote this to them. That's probably either the letter that came from the apostles or an additional letter that Paul wrote. Because he says later, this second time I'm reading. We call it the first letter of Paul, but it's the second. So, he says, don't mix together or be associated with a fornicator, someone who's violating the commandments of Leviticus. He's not talking about the unbelievers or of the world. 
Jesus was considered a friend of sinners. But he was not a friend of Pharisees who were sinning. He blasted them. You see the difference? To those who don't know God, to those who don't understand, he is coming to them to tell them that there is a way to go. Not to tell them that they're on the wrong way. But to those who are on the way, there is a stricter requirement because they know better. To whom much is given, much is required. So he says, I wrote to you not to be in community or relationship with the so-called brother. The Greek there is named brother. This is one who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ. If, and now he gives us a list. If you don't like the way they dress, he doesn't say that. If they wear makeup, he didn't say that. Okay, we got a lot of churches kick people out for a lot of weird things. Okay? Paul makes it clear. These are very serious uh, transgressions of the commandments. He begins with the fornicator, the one who is sexually violating the Leviticus 18 passages. Then he talks about the covetous. This is one who's always seeking more stuff or a greater place. In other words, they're motivated by fame and fortune and they will compromise anything and anybody to get that, uh, that access. Idolater. One who worships another god by ritual or by action. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. Uh, which is money, right? A reviler. This is someone who blows up in anger and becomes abusive to the point of violence. Okay? This is uh, what we would call domestic violence kind of people. Uh, and by the way, there's an enormous amount of that going on in the church. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the church at large. Right? Uh, drunkard. That's one whose life is committed to being drunk or high. This is the escape artist who's just just going. They may be just a wonderful person. But they are not following the spirit. They're full of spirits, right? That's, that's the difference. And, and Paul says that counts. And the swindler. This is one who uses extortion or robbery or manipulation to get wealth from others. He's using other people for his own benefits. Now, these are patterned habits. And Paul says, don't even eat with them. These so-called Christians are not to be in our lives, let alone in our congregation. Now, these are patterned living sins. They are intentional and habitual, and there is no struggle with repentance. A guy has an alcoholic problem, and he's crying out to God and trying to get help, and has sinned and is repentant following Peter's argument with Jesus. We, we, we forgive them and forgive them and forgive them. Because they're getting up and trying to go the right way. But the person who's trying to not be caught. And the person who's trying to get away with as much as he can. That's the person that we are to address and deal with. They, uh, they may be believers who are caught in a sin or an unbeliever wanting to benefit from being in the community. 
Either way, they violate the holy unity. And if we allow them, then we maintain an unholy unity in the congregation, which is why I entitled this, uh, this thing. This is, this is a problem. It's a problem in a lot of churches because they don't have a membership, so there's nothing to be kicked out of. Everything's a public service, so anybody can come. And there are state laws that get in the way of those kinds of things. So that's a problem. So Paul's talking about you don't eat with such one. I, I want to use an example I use in, in class because I think it, I always get pushback, particularly on the campus when I talk about these verses. If, if somebody knew that I was pillaging, I was working out a way to engage in a, uh, a way to rip off the university in money. Say back when I was a dean, I was working some budget things so that I could end up getting some money for myself. And you knew about that. And I don't care because I'm the dean, dang it, and I'm going to do it. And don't be judgmental. And then I said, hey, let's go have dinner. What are you supposed to say to me? No, right? What if my wife, I want her to go to dinner with me? Oh, well, she's your wife. No, she's a sister in the Lord. This is grounds for removing somebody from the home or the congregation. Really important to keep in mind. Because it will do the same damage in the home that it does in the congregation. And uh, it's important to keep that uh, in place. So, we pick it up at verse 12 and 13. Um, Paul says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not our job. Our job is not to judge the sinner. Because the Bible assumes... That the sinner is sinning and that's God's area, right? That's why Paul says the will of God is our sanctification in Thessalonians. That we know how to possess our vessel, not in fornication like the Gentiles who don't know God. And he says the person who rejects this is not rejecting man, but rejecting the God who gave us his Holy Spirit so that we would be in holy unity. With one another. So he says, I don't have anything to do with judging outsiders. Do you not judge those who are within? The obvious answer is yes, that's what we're supposed to do. Those who are outside, God judges, and then he quotes uh, the Older Testament in saying, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So you shall remove wickedness from Israel. God says over and over. So it's not our business to judge those who are outside the community. That's why a lot of the church's political activity is misdirected. Our job is not to impose the law of God on the unbeliever. Okay? That is trying to wash a pig. It'll go right back to wallowing in the mire. Worse than that, 
It's like trying to teach a pig to sing. It doesn't work, and it irritates the pig, right? The problem is, as we do more of that judgment, we get a backlash from them, okay? Our call is to ask them to let us and our families live by our God's command. That's religious freedom. It's not religious freedom to fight for the public to accommodate everything we do. And that's a real problem. So then he says... God is the judge of those who are outside, but we are to judge those who are in our homes and in our congregations and in the relationships that we maintain with known or claimed Christians. I have often had to say to somebody who wants to be around me, you have to give up your profession of faith and then you and I can hang out. What do you mean? You either got to live according to the profession of faith, which I know you're not going to do, or you've got to quit, give up your claiming to be a Christian. And then I can deal with you as just a sinner. And I can, I, we can have lunch. But I can't eat with you if you're claiming to be a Christian and engaging in this behavior. Then, of course, they think I'm a nut or judgmental and all that kind of stuff. I don't really care about that. Uh, but that's the problem. Okay, So... They are to be removed from our homes and our congregations. We should not be in fellowship, particularly table fellowship, with them unless and until they repent openly and that repentance is demonstrated. Okay? So this is not, I come, we come, every Sunday I come and repent. Okay? And then I live like hell all week, I come and repent. Live like hell all week, come and repent. That pattern is a pattern of these people draw near me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The issue of true repentance is that you will see the struggle against the sin that so easily besets the person. Not a, well, it's, well you're just being judgmental. Yes, we are. Okay? We're supposed to. Paul's going to talk about judgment in a number of ways. And Christians are supposed to be judged by Christians, not outsiders. And Christians are not supposed to be judging outsiders, but that's next week's message. So, here's our problem. Many churches do not do this because they are public businesses now and fall under federal and state law. We, at the Disciples Center, are a private community. And we have some protection from those state and federal laws at this point while we strive to be accountable to God. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to continue this as he talks about lawsuits among them also disrupting their unity. And he's going to talk about other sexual issues that are going to come on, uh, come up. And he's going to uh, readdress marriage in the context of the persecution that the Corinthians find themselves in. And so it's important to see this whole section as part of the theme of the book being a holy unity in Christ, which shows up in marriage and family and shows up in congregation, the two institutions that can function in diaspora. It's not as if we're in the Holy Land and the kingdom is there. We are anticipating the kingdom and the kingdom lives in our hearts, in our homes, and in our congregation. We continue to be of the congregation when we're out and about, but we're not out and about in the congregation. So as I've said before, when you enter into this premise, you have entered into the kingdom of God. This is an embassy of the kingdom of God in diaspora. Our homes 
are outposts of the kingdom of God. Uh, when people enter your home, the kingdom of God ought to be operating there so that they experience that. And the way the kingdom of God works is, even if you don't believe, you live by the rules when you're in the, in the kingdom area. Okay, so somebody comes onto my property, kingdom rules apply. They go to my neighbor's house, that's a different place, right? I'd like a little sign that says, you're entering the kingdom, passports please, right? You're leaving the kingdom and entering California. That would be a great sign, you know, on the gate of the door. If, if nothing else, to remind us of these principles that we often forget. So we're going to see Paul continuing this uh, issue of holiness, humility, and unity as we move forward in the rest of the, uh, of the text. So let's pray.